0: Luke chapter 10, we're going to be picking it up in verse 17. The big idea of our message last week, and our, our message today uh, is just really a continuation of last week. We saw that uh, the big idea is missional living. And missional living, as we learned last week, uh, is when you live out a genuine faith and you intentionally share that faith with other people. And here's why we do this. We do it because God is a God of love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mark 10.45 tells us that uh, the Son of God came not to be served but to serve and to give. His life as a ransom for many. And because God exercises his love in this missional way, well, then what he expects of his kids is that we would do Likewise, Jesus said this in, Mark, uh, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, he said it in Luke chapter 14, he said it in Matthew chapter 28, that we are to go into all the world and that we are to preach the good news to everyone. This is the heart of God. Now this is a global commission that the Lord gives to us and extends to the whole world that we should go into all the world and make disciples and, and so on, preaching the good news to everyone. But listen, biblically, we see that missional living, well, listen, it's something that starts first locally and then it moves globally. Think about Jesus' last words to his disciples on this earth in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem in in uh Samaria and he says uh, uh in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth you see that there is this starting locally and moving globally kind of kind of mission there and that's exactly what happened Luke records through the book of Acts that the disciples waited on the Lord in prayer and the the Lord then poured his Holy Spirit out upon them on the day of Pentecost. The church was born and then now in Jerusalem it just started to take off. And slowly what began to happen is over time, the disciples would then be scattered. The Lord would largely use persecution to get them to actually go out and do what he had commanded. And so the church was then scattered across the world. And as these disciples were scattered out of Jerusalem, they preached the gospel everywhere they went. That's what the Bible tells us. And so they had this missional living as they went out. And here in Luke chapter 9, And as well in Luke chapter 10, what we see is the beginning of this calling and commissioning of Jesus' disciples. We see Jesus call and commission and coach his disciples in Luke chapter 9. And we see now in Luke chapter 10 the, send, the sending out of 70 others also. That's what we read in verses 1 and 2. After these things, after what things? After the Lord called, commissioned, and coached his disciples and sent them out. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, sent them two by two before his face um, into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Uh, and, and then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so we looked at this last week and, and just looked at what it is to be called and commissioned and, and sent out by uh, the Lord in this way. And now what happens, we pick up the story in verse 17 and we read now, then the 70 we returned with joy. saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to this, but that the... um, Uh, are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Lots to unpack there. Let's start here. Take note that all 70 returned. They all returned safe and sound, right? Jesus had said, look, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And I asked you the question last week, you ever see a lamb with a bunch of wolves? not for very long you don't right <laughs> a little this is not just sheep in the midst of wolves this is a, a little lamb you know a tender lamb and this is the way Jesus said look i'm sending you out you know you're not going out there with an ak47 just to dominate and and domineer be domineering no 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 i'm sending you out with 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 love And and in meekness, I'm sending you out. And here they are, all 70 return. They're safe and they're sound. And not only do they return safely, would you note there that they returned in joy. They returned with joy. Now, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, you might want to circle that word joy. Nearby, you could write cheerful delight. You're like, I know what joy is, Pastor Ted. Cheerful delight, that's the literal definition of what that word is. And I love the way it's pronounced in the Greek. And I know this is how it's pronounced because I listened on Blue Letter Bible to Justin Alfred telling me how to pronounce it, all right? Now, here's the way it's pronounced, and I'm going to say it in my American accent, okay? But in the Greek, it's pronounced hurrah, hurrah, right? Now, it's not the same, or, or you know, root that we get, to the best of my knowledge, to where we get, you know, our exclamation of hurrah. But man it means the same thing this is cheerful delight hurrah and this is the result listen this I get excited when I talk about this but I, but I, listen when god moves and works in us listen when god moves and works in you isn't that what comes out of your heart truly. Isn't it like when you, if you serve at our VBS and you see several hundred kids raising their hand, and up until that point, it has been all about sleep deprivation, and coffee, and heat stroke, and all of the stuff that you go through, and you're thinking, why on earth do I, do I volunteer for this every single year? And then a kid gives his life to the Lord, a little girl gives her life to the Lord, and you say, that's why I do it. And you're like, hurrah, it makes all the in the world. This is fantastic, right? And this is the way they come back. They're filled with joy. They're like, hurrah, man, this is great. Look at what happened. And, and so this is just incredible what they are going through. We had last week during the message here on Sunday. By God's grace, you know, I hadn't planned to, to give an invitation. It's just the Holy Spirit just sort of led me. And we saw several people raising their hands to invite Jesus Christ to be their Lord and, and Savior. And we had several people who had brought, who had brought those, those people over the, the couple of services that we had. That these are people that they had been witnessing to, ministering to. And now all of a sudden... The ones that they that they have been trying to share the gospel with, the ones that they've been inviting to church. Maybe it's it's you and you know I'm, and you would sit here and say, Gosh, I know they've been inviting me. They've just been pestering me, and yes, I received Christ. Thank you, Jesus. And they, in their hearts, hurrah! Thank you, Lord Jesus. We had our first Wednesday uh, was this last Wednesday. We get together the first Wednesday of every month for prayer and worship. If you weren't here. You missed out, let me just tell you the Holy Spirit showed up in a big way, and it was a sweet time and i didn't even give an invitation. it was just we're worshiping we're praying the Lord through His Holy Spirit, giving words of knowledge and so on and and we had this this person gave their life to the Lord and again, long story, very long story we got we got the update after the fact, but it was a matter of the people who had been pouring into and the people who had, who had brought this person, their response and our response hearing the story, hurrah, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you continue to do. And so that's the response here, this joy. And hey, even the demons are subject to us, they say, in your name. In other words, I don't read in here that they're taking credit for it. Right? What they're saying is, that, this is amazing. Even the demons were subject to us, Jesus, in your name. Right? They, they're putting, they're, they're, they're putting the, the, the credit where it belongs. They understand where the source of their power is. But take note again, what does Jesus say to them? They come back with joy and he said to them again, look at verse 18 and following. It said, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, this is, by the way, where you, you get all the, you know, the the folks that are, I'll choose my words carefully, but you get those crazy folks out in Texas and wherever that they grab the snakes, and we can take up serpents, and you see them dancing with snakes and doing all this stuff. They, they, they get it from this, and, and you know, Okay, so, so what happens is, as is Jesus is, is saying here, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, why did you open this Pandora's box? All right. <laughs> Jesus is basically saying, look, when you go out on mission for me, I'm going to take care of you. Now, I'm sure there's lots of people that are martyred for their faith um, and, and, and all of that and, and you know, hey. Ultimately, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And His presence is fullness of joy, right? And pleasures forevermore, you know, the Bible says. So, so yeah, sometimes we'll go out. He's not saying that, that, that you're, you're bulletproof or that you, you are, you know, I- immortal. But listen, you are as long as you're in the Lord's will. For as long as the Lord has a hand upon you, is using you, and is directing the course of your life, He's going to direct your course. Paul, quite literally on one of his missionary journeys, shipwrecked on the island, I think, of Malta. And he he gets bitten by a serpent, and everybody's watching him like a hawk because they're like, clearly the gods are getting even with this guy because he survived the shipwreck, but they're not going to let him survive because he's so wicked. And so they're watching Paul, and then to their amazement, he's fine. He shakes the snake off in the fire, goes about his business, where was I? And goes about doing what he's doing, and everybody all of a sudden recognizes, whoa. It, it, it is not what we thought it was. Like there is, this, this guy has divine protection upon him. And, and this is kind of the idea here. And so what the Lord says, he says, I give you this power. He says, nevertheless, and here's the point, before I went off on this tangent, nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Let me start with what he's not saying. What Jesus is not saying here is that we shouldn't rejoice in the victories that we get to be a part of. Jesus isn't saying that. Absolutely, we should rejoice in the victories that we get to be a part of. I think of David. When, when he was, you know, tending his father's sheep and his dad sends him with all of the, the, the cheese and the supplies to the front lines, his brother's there fighting. And, well, they're supposed to be fighting, but at this point they're quaking in their boots and they're afraid to engage the enemy. Why? Because Goliath is there large and in charge. And so Saul and all the forces, they're all afraid. And David gets there and he sees Goliath just breathing out these, these threats, just, you know, blaspheming God. And David's angry, Righteously, has a righteous indignation. And he says, somebody needs to put this guy out of my misery. That's basically what he says. And so he, he volunteers for the job. And everybody's like, well, you can't do it. And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I can. Uh, loose paraphrase. And so David ends up killing Goliath. You guys know the story, right? And so what's he do? After he kills Goliath, after he, you know, the stone sinks into his forehead... David grabs Goliath's sword, hacks off Goliath's head, and then you get to 1 Samuel 17, verse 57, and here's the way it reads. It says, as soon as David returned (coughs) from killing Goliath, Abner, one of Saul's generals, brought him to Saul with the Philistine head still in his hand. You want to tell me, that he ain't rejoicing in victory. That's David shows up. He's like, "What can I do for you?" <laughs> right? Hey, King, how's it going? Let me. Oh, hang on. How you doing? You know? No, nah, don't mind this. It's just a little trophy from the war that I just I just had there. You know? I mean, this is rejoicing in victory, right? Talk about a demon being subject to you. I mean, David is rejoicing in this victory. As a matter of fact. It was in remembering and rejoicing in his past victories that gave David the faith to face Goliath in the first place. When they told him, you can't do that, you're just a kid, and he's been killing people since he was a kid. And David, his response was, no, that's not how it's going to go down. Because when I was a boy tending the sheep, my father's sheep, When a lion or a bear attacked, I fought and I overcame them. And this uncircumcised Philistine is going to be just like them. What did he do? He remembered his past wilderness experiences. He remembered his past victories. right? And that's what informed his confidence, his faith, To be able to say, you know what, I can face him as well because the Lord was with me then, the Lord will be with me now. This is why Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, here it is, with thanksgiving to let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus What Paul is telling the Philippians there is, listen, when you're anxious, go to the Lord in prayer and include thanksgiving. Why? Well, because when you're thankful to God and you start articulating all the things that you have to be thankful for, that exercise will inform you and remind you all the time the Lord has faithfully brought you through your past wilderness experiences. And so you can go through the the next trial having been informed by that. And so what Jesus is not saying here in Luke chapter 10 when, you know, they come all thrilled and hey, look, we even the demons are subject to us in your name and he gives them, you know, this word of caution, hey, don't don't draw the conclusion that you're not supposed that it's not appropriate to celebrate the victories that you have. Absolutely it is. And again, I don't see any sort of of, of sinful inclination in their hearts here, but What is Jesus saying? Listen, here's what he's saying. Get this. He's basically saying, look, the end all be all isn't the power that you have in Christ. That's not the end all be all. No, he's saying the end all be all is the pardon that you have in Christ. It's not the power you have in Christ. It's the pardon that you have in Christ. I love the way David Guzik explains this need for caution here. He says this, he says, Some people get emotionally intoxicated after successful service or the display of spiritual power. After God uses them in some way, they are arrogantly impressed with all that they did for God, but God wants us to always see that what he did for us is always far greater than what we could ever do for him. That's the idea. That's the reason for caution here. And as I said, it would appear the 70 are appropriately oriented in their praise, but the potential is there. Listen, it is heady stuff when God uses you to do stuff and, and, and do amazing things. And you have to guard your heart. When God uses you. Not to think more of yourself than you ought. Not to think more highly of yourself than you ought. We need to keep it in perspective. I think, you know, often I, I have the occasion, you know, I, I drive by Revival Christian Fellowship. And, and all of the, the memories just start flooding back. And I think about the humble days and just a little Bible study in my house. And I think about going through just all of the years of, you know, little Easter service with, you know, 75 people there or whatever it was. And, you know, the, the person that responded, you know, to the Lord and gave their life uh, to Christ and, you know, then became ultimately one of our pastors on staff and all of the different things and every year we would have some sort of event and now, you know, it's, it's 3,000 people here at the church, now it's 5,000 people at the church, now it's 6,500 people and, and we would have these events and I would always look back and, and remember all of this stuff and and God just always quickly right there, just to, to remind you, whether it was a circumstance or whether it was, you know, you, you, just the quiet whisper of his heart, of his voice to your heart. But he was just always quick just to say, let's get one thing straight. This ain't got nothing to do with you. This is, this is what I do. This is what I do. And so, you, you know, anytime I get the, the you know, start the rear view mirror nostalgia kind of thing where I think, oh, wow, look at what God did at Revival, or wow, look at what God's doing here, you know, at Reliance Church and all the all that's happened and thinking about all the events or, you know, my different friends that I've helped you know, plant their church. I, I mentioned Pastor Josh at Door of Hope and, you know, being able to help him get his church started and get, you know, this is how you structure your board and let me help you do that. And let me help you get your bylaws all in place and, and all these different things. And, and yet, listen, it's so amazingly wonderful to think about all those things. But, man, we can't ever forget that the ultimate joy is not about what God does through us. It's about what God has done for us. And that's the thing here. We gotta understand it. Look, we gotta hear this loud and clear. And, church, hear me when I say this. The Bible teaches that you and I are wicked and evil through and through. We are wicked and evil through and through. The prophet Isaiah, God speaking through. The prophet Isaiah, he said this, he says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Now, you got to understand, in the Hebrew... Filthy rags is a pretty disgusting, unpleasant thing. Literally, and I'll put this as delicately as I can, but God doesn't put it so delicately. They are garments of menstruation. That's what filthy rags is. This is graphic and this is crude. And listen, this is the word of God. God said it. Okay, And so the point is that we have to understand this idea is even the works that we do that may seem holy from the outside, listen, if it's done in our flesh or if it has any part of our fingerprints on it, it's corrupted. That's the thing. There ain't nothing good in you and so to come and say, oh, look at all this great stuff that we do. Even the demons are subject to us in in your name careful. Because if you start getting your fingerprints on the stuff that you do, it is the most disgusting thing that you can ever imagine. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, speaking to his seminary students. He said, sirs, there is sin in our prayers. They need to be prayed over again. There is filth in the very tears that we shed in penitence. There is sin in our very holiness. There is unbelief in our faith. There is hatred in our very love. There is the slime of the serpent upon the fairest flower of our garden. And because this is true, we need always to keep at the very forefront of our focus what Jesus has done for us. It's all about what Christ has done. For us. And so Jesus says, Look, joy doesn't come by what you do. It comes from the the assurance that your name is written in heaven. Now, Jesus, here, when he talks about your name being written in heaven, what he's talking about, he's talking about the book of life, right? This is the record of all who have been saved. Now, Jesus refers to the book of life here in, in Luke chapter 10. Uh, to the 70, but he also referred to the book of life in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, to the church in Sardis. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what he says. He says, he who overcomes, speaking to the church in Sardis, shall be clothed in white garments, and here it is, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, this is a controversial verse because some think it suggests that we can lose our salvation. And let me just say matter of factly, no you can't lose your salvation. Jesus made that clear to his disciples in John chapter 10. Here's what he said. He said, "My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. He says, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand." My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So what is Jesus saying here when he talks to uh, the, the church of Sardis in, uh, in Revelation chapter 3? What's he saying? What Jesus is saying, he's saying, well, understand, in Sardis, the records of citizenship were kept for the whole city. They were, they were very diligent about that. And so if you got convicted of a capital crime, what would happen is they'd haul you into the city square, uh, they would open the citizenship records, they would find your name, they would then blot out your name, and then they'd cut off your head. That's how it went down in Sardis, if you were guilty of a capital crime, and so one idea about the book of life in, in heaven, when Jesus, speaking there to the church of, of uh, Sardis, says, uh, I will not blot out your name from the book of life, one, one idea is that um, what, what's happening here is that everybody who's born has their name, you know, speaking of, of heaven, has their name written. In in the book of life, and then if they reject Jesus, then their name is blotted out. That's one idea of what Jesus is saying. Um, But another possibility is this, that if you are a child of God, what Jesus is conveying in Revelation chapter 3 when he says, your name I won't blot out of the the book of life, isn't that it's a possibility that that he'll blot your name out. In other words, what he's saying is, no, it's an impossibility. That's never going to happen to you. In other words what Jesus is saying to this church of Sardis he's saying you know in your culture like when people are hauled into the the you know the the town square there and they blot out their name in the citizenship record and chop their head off when they're guilty of a, of a capital crime he's saying look that's that's never going to happen to you if you're in Christ that that's the idea what Jesus is saying listen the day that you surrender your life to Jesus and you make him lord your name is permanently written and it never comes out. Why? Because God doesn't write your name in the book of life in pencil. Your name is written in the book of life in the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing you can do to separate yourself From the love of God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell, he says, can separate us from God's love. And listen, some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to hear and be reminded of the fact that God will never leave you and he'll never forsake you. The Bible promises that. you got to hear that God's heart for you is a heart of love. If you've invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior, there ain't nothing that's going to change that. You are right with God today. You are right with God tomorrow. You are right with God the next day. You are right with God two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now. You're not going to lose your salvation. Paul said, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able ever to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now listen, that doesn't mean that God's just perfectly fine and dandy with you going off the rails and living in sin. That's not what that means. But here's what it does mean. It means if you do go off the rails, if you do sin, understand God's not going to revoke your citizenship. No, he, He's going to he's bring you back to Himself and He's going to atone for that sin. Here's what, what Jesus said, or uh, John, uh, John uh, the Apostle John said in 1 John. He said, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. And so here we, we've got the 70, they return with joy. And verse 21 says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Your sight, all things, verse 22, have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so the idea here is the 70 return, they're filled with joy, and so is Jesus. Jesus is filled with joy. Verse 21 says, he rejoiced in the Spirit. Literally in the Greek, it means that he was thrilled with joy. So they're thrilled with joy. He's thrilled with joy. Why? Because God's plan is coming together. That's why. This is why Jesus is filled with joy. God's plan is coming together, and it doesn't have man's fingerprints on it. That's the point. That's the idea. You see, when he, says, when he talks about the babes in verse 21, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them. Here it is. Two babes. The babes that he's talking about in verse 21 are the 70 that are going out and sharing the good news. And and he's talking about these simple believers who've received wisdom from revelation of God and they've acted upon it. And, And so Jesus here, he's rejoicing that unlikely people are being taught and used by God to reveal God's plan of salvation. The whole world. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, he said, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, Paul says, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. See, what Paul says is this. Paul says that God chose the simplicity of the preaching of the gospel to save sinners. And, And man can't know God through worldly wisdom right or engineering it or human effort revelation can only come through the proclamation of god's word it's not something that we uh, it, that we develop through intellect it's something that we that we receive through revelation that's the idea paul told the corinthians this in second corinthians chapter 5 he said anyone who belongs to christ has become a new person the old life is gone a new life has begun and all of this is a gift from god who brought us who who uh, brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so we are Christ's ambassadors God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the sin offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God made, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. That's the idea. And so this is what Jesus is rejoicing in, and verse 23, then he turned to his disciples and he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. I like what William Barclay says. He says, Jesus was the peak to which history had been climbing, the goal to which it had been marching, the dream which had ever haunted men of God. And this is what Jesus basically says, you have no idea, you 70, of how desperately the prophets and the kings of the past would would love to see what you're seeing now. See, the prophets, they wrote these incredible prophecies, they had no idea how it was going to be fulfilled. All they knew was that God was leading them to write these things down. But they're like, how's all this going to work out? What's it going to be? What's it going to look like? I have no idea. I wish I did. And Jesus is saying to the 70, and by the way, to us, the people who actually, the prophets who actually wrote the prophecies that we read, they'd give anything to be in your shoes. To be able to, because, you know, the nature of prophecy is that the closer that prophecy gets to fulfillment, and of course, there's hundreds of prophecies that have already been fi- fulfilled, but even the ones that haven't yet been fulfilled, the closer you get to the fulfillment of those prophecies, the clearer they become. And so now you have all of this new insight, and you're like, wow, that's brilliant, that's amazing. Amazing. See, the, again, the, the Bible makes it clear that the prophets, they weren't, they weren't serving themselves. They were serving us. That everything that they endured to communicate in advance the nature of prophecy, communicating in advance what Jesus would do, everything that they endured, it was for us. And listen, they endured a lot. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the prophets were tortured, that they faced jeers and flogging, that some of them were chained and put in prison that they were stoned to death, that they were sawn in two, Isaiah the prophet, sawn in two, that they were put to death by the sword, that they were destitute, persecuted, mistreated, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And Paul concludes the world was not worthy of them. And again, the Bible says that it was to us that they were ministering these things. They went through all of that stuff for for us, really, writing these things for us in the future. And so the scene here that we've got, it's joy all around. It is joy all around. The 70 are filled with joy as they see God working in them and through them. Jesus is filled with joy as he sees God's plan to save sinners unfolding. And behold, verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life now this is this is a, a lawyer you know a legal guy you know one of the legal religious minds and he's trying to trap jesus trying to test jesus right and they were all what were they all about these 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 keepers of the law these 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 lawyers here in this time They're all about being righteous with God by what they do. And so he says, what shall I do to earn, right, to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus' answer is predicated on that. You want to know, okay, because we know right now, right, we know from the benefit of hindsight, from the benefit of being Christians and understanding the gospel, it ain't about what you do. On your best day, we've just been talking about this. On your best day, your righteousness is as filthy rags. You're not going to earn a right standing with God by what you do. But he hasn't gotten the memo yet. So he's like, well, what do I have to do to be right with God? And so Jesus said to him, what's written of the, in the law? What's your reading of it? And so he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered, rightly do this and you will live. You remember a guy went to Jesus. He said, hey, uh, what's the most important commandment in the law? Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what it is. In fact, I'll, I'll, t- I'll give you a freebie. I'll tell you what it is and what the second most important commandment is. He says the first more in commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the, that's, that's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, your whole Bible is summarized with loving God and loving others. So he asks this, 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 this religious leader, the religious leader asks Jesus, what do, I got, what do I have to do to be right? And Jesus says, well, here's what you have to do, love God. Love, well, Jesus says, what's your reading of the law? And this guy says the right answer. Love God, love others. And Jesus says, yeah, do that and you'll live. Now, huh, here's, here's the, 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 the little trick here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 basically tells us that the law was given to us as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, as a paedagogos, which was the schoolmaster, and the law, its job was to show you and to show me that it's impossible for us to keep the law. That's why the law was given. The law was given to lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers. We're not law keepers, you know. And so what happens is we get the standard and we go, well, I can't keep that standard. And God says, good, that's the memo I wanted you to get. So that what happens is when we have the law, we look to the Lord, And say, help, I need a Savior. And he said, I thought you'd never ask, you know. And so here's what Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now, this is a Galatians 3.24 moment. Because what he should say is, well, I can't do that consistently. I need help. And then, yes, you do. That's the gospel. Now, let's talk about that. But he, verse 29, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my Neighbor, he's not looking for a Lord, not looking for a Savior, not getting the Galatians 3.24 memo. He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for a loophole. He says, oh, okay, so i got to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who's my neighbor? Let's get that down. Let's just figure it out. You know, who, who exactly is, is my neighbor? And Jesus answered, and, he, and he, so now he tells him a parable. And I'm going to move quickly through this. But basically, it says a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, a quick summary of the story. Basically, you've got this guy who's been, who's been beaten up and wounded. Now you've got two religious leaders who basically bail on him, do nothing to help him. And now you've got a Samaritan who was hated and despised by the Jews, and he's the hero of the story. He has compassion, and so when he went to, so he, the Samaritan, went to him, bandaged his wound, pouring oil on, um, the pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to to an inn, and he took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said to him, "Take care of him, and and um, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you." So now Jesus asks. This, this religious leader who's trying to, to trip him up, he says, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, he who showed mercy on him. He couldn't even say it was a Samaritan. He couldn't even say, oh, it was a Samaritan. Hated him that much. He's just like, well, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Quick summary, and then we're gonna be done. The beaten man here, it's been well said, is a picture of the effects of sin, right? Here he is, and and the world is beating him up, and and it's a great picture of the effects of sin. The priest, the Levite, you know, it's been well said, this is a picture of religion and how religion and legalism is powerless to save us. Don't do anything to help us out. This Samaritan... It's a picture of Jesus, right? It's been well said that, that this Samaritan is a picture of Jesus who sees the need, tends to, cares for the need, says, hey, listen, I- I'm going to pay for him, and I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I'm going I'm to take care of all of his debt, right? But listen, the big idea of this parable is who's my neighbor. That's the big idea. See, Jesus completely upends... This man's question. He says, look, the question isn't, who is my neighbor? Here's the question. The question is, who am I being a neighbor to? That's the question. Who am I being a neighbor to? One's an obligation, but listen, the other one's an attitude. It's the attitude of the 70 that say, we're going to go out and we're going to return with joy when the Lord moves and works and does this this work in our heart. It's the attitude of Jesus who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Let me ask you the question as we close. Is this your attitude? Is this your attitude? Not who's my neighbor, who am I being a neighbor to?